Welcome to the Publisher's Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our August 2011 issue. Let's get started. Our lead article this month takes a look at the clinical and cognitive correlates of suicide attempt and bipolar disorder and asks, is suicide predictable? Bipolar disorder is a chronic and debilitating mood disorder associated with substantial morbidity and mortality. Research has shown suicide to be more prevalent among patients with bipolar disorder than among any other psychiatric patient group, including those with major depression. A recent review found that 15 to 19 percent of bipolar patients die by suicide. Clearly, suicidality among bipolar patients is a significant public health concern worthy of extensive examination. Prior studies that attempted to assess potential clinical and neuropsychological correlates of suicidal behavior were limited and did not focus specifically on bipolar cohorts. To supplement this prior work, the authors of this study examined a set of trait and state clinical measures, demographic characteristics, and neurocognitive tasks thought to be relevant to bipolar disorder and suicide. They used these measures to retrospectively assess which of 67 adult bipolar patients were at greater risk for suicide attempt. The results showed that suicide attempters were less impulsive than non-attempters, but overall, the study failed to find reliable predictors of suicidal behavior. The authors conclude that this study's failure to find reliable neuropsychological predictors of suicide highlights the clinician's dilemma when faced with the task of predicting which patients will attempt suicide and which ones are at a lower risk. They urge researchers to conduct more prospective analyses aimed at exploring quantifiable risk factors for suicide attempts in this high-risk patient group. Post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, is associated with altered concentrations of stress-related neurochemicals in plasma and serum. Few studies, however, have examined central alterations of these measures in individuals with PTSD. Furthermore, no study to date has evaluated the effects of successful antidepressant treatment on cerebrospinal fluid abnormalities in PTSD. An international group of researchers looked at 16 medication-free outpatients with chronic PTSD due to physical and or sexual abuse or motor vehicle accidents, and 11 non-traumatized healthy subjects. These participants underwent lumbar puncture for collection of cerebrospinal fluid. Seven PTSD patients had repeat lumbar puncture 12 weeks later after successful treatment of PTSD with paroxetine. The fluid was analyzed for concentrations of several neurochemicals. Compared to non-traumatized healthy controls, patients with chronic PTSD had similar pretreatment concentrations of these neurochemicals. Post-treatment measures did not change significantly in patients whose symptoms remitted with paroxetine. 
chronic moderate PTSD due to civilian trauma without psychosis and without significant rates of comorbid depression or substance dependence is not associated with abnormalities in levels of stress-related neurochemicals in cerebrospinal fluid. Despite substantial reduction in PTSD symptoms, antidepressant treatment does not, for the most part, alter normal cerebrospinal fluid concentrations of stress-related neurochemicals. This month we have a report from the Ohio National Guard Mental Health Initiative, a 10-year study that began in 2008. The goal of this project is to report on factors associated with risk and resilience and to look at relationship between deployment experience and the development of Axis I disorders. The project is particularly important since the National Guard has played a big role in Operation Enduring Freedom and Operation Iraqi Freedom, and this branch of the military may experience challenges during integration back into civilian life. Dr. Calabrese and his colleagues used data from the project to look at the relationship between PTSD, psychiatric comorbidity, and suicidal ideation. The data were collected by telephone from a random sample of about 2,600 soldiers who enrolled in the study. Among Guard members with PTSD during the last year, about 62% had at least one other psychopathology, and about 20% had at least two other conditions. The most common comorbid condition was depression. The authors point out that clinicians should look for co-occurring depression and alcohol dependence in PTSD, since this presentation carries an especially high risk for suicidality. In fact, two illnesses co-occurring with PTSD increase the risk of suicidality more than sevenfold. The authors note the importance of monitoring patients with PTSD and comorbid conditions for indications of suicidal thoughts, and they stress the importance of pursuing effective treatment for these individuals. The next study reminds us that illness does not exist in a diagnostic vacuum. A group of Canadian researchers examined the impact of changes in diagnostic criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder using a Canadian PTSD epidemiologic sample. The rates of PTSD and its correlates were evaluated in a random sample of just over 3,000 adults using criteria from different versions of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders from the 3rd through the 4th editions and the 10th revision of the International Classification of Diseases. The researchers examined the way in which the changing diagnostic criteria in the various editions of the DSM and ICD-10 affected rates of PTSD. The lifetime prevalence rates of PTSD decreased as criteria became more stringent with latter editions of the DSM. For example, when DSM-3 criteria were applied to the sample, the lifetime prevalence rate was 13.4%. When DSM-4 criteria were applied, the rate decreased to 9.2%. 
rates of comorbid major depressive disorder and alcohol and substance abuse and dependence, on the other hand, were significantly higher using the dsm four PTSD criteria, and subjects with dsm four PTSD reported significantly higher rates of help-seeking. dsm four post-traumatic stress disorder may identify a more severe condition. The addition of the clinical significance criterion F appeared to affect the greatest change in prevalence rates. This information may be useful for future revisions of PTSD diagnostic criteria. Details of this study have been necessarily simplified for this podcast. I urge listeners to seek out the full article on our website, psychiatrist.com. Our next study points out how little we know about how often antipsychotics actually need to be given to avoid relapse. Prescribing patterns have been guided by pharmacokinetics. All of the currently available oral antipsychotics are given at least once daily. But the authors raise the question of whether an extended dosing schedule would work just as well for maintenance treatment of schizophrenia. A group from Canada investigated whether giving oral medication every other day instead of every day would increase the risk of relapse or reduce the occurrence of side effects. For six months, 18 stabilized schizophrenia patients received their daily medication as usual, and 17 patients received it every other day. Patients in the extended dosing group were not at greater risk of symptom exacerbation, relapse, or rehospitalization. In fact, more rehospitalizations occurred in those receiving regular dosing. At the same time, though, there was no indication that side effects were significantly reduced in the extended dosing group. The results of this study challenged the long-standing belief that oral antipsychotics must be given daily, and the authors encourage further study to determine whether the clinical benefits of extended dosing will be shown to outweigh the potential risks. In another report on schizophrenia, the authors remind us that at least 40 to 50 percent of patients with schizophrenia exhibit poor adherence to their medication regimens. The consequences of poor adherence are increased psychiatric hospitalizations and overall health care service use. A long-acting injectable form of risperidone was released in 2003. It was developed to address adherence concerns and has demonstrated effectiveness comparable to the oral form. However, evidence is still needed on how it is used in real-life clinical settings. To this end, the authors examined Medicaid claims to determine whether the use of this therapy was consistent with the manufacturer's prescribing recommendations and what factors were associated with early discontinuation. Florida Medicaid claims between 2003 and 2007 were used to gather data on demographics and diagnoses, provision of oral antipsychotic supplementation during the first 21 days, and the number of injections received. The authors also assessed the medication possession ratio and whether augmentation or polypharmacy was used after the first 21 days. Early discontinuation factors were identified by logistic regression analysis. 
Results showed that risperidone long-acting therapy was typically used with the recommended age and diagnostic groups. Early discontinuation was associated with absence of oral supplementation during the first 21 days, low or high initial doses, more severe illness, and being male. The authors conclude that physicians should be educated on the unique features of the medication protocol and that patients should be educated on the manufacturer's prescribing recommendations to maximize effectiveness. Therapeutic drug monitoring is a valuable tool for guiding treatment in particular circumstances. For example, when using drugs for which dosage is not directly correlated with clinical response. Quetiapine has recently been suggested as a possible candidate for therapeutic drug monitoring. In this next review article, the authors assessed all available evidence regarding the relationships between blood quetiapine concentration, daily dose, dopamine receptor occupancy, and clinical outcome. With this information, they aim to define a target plasma level range in which therapeutic response is enhanced and adverse events are avoided. Their search of major databases uncovered 42 relevant articles, 20 of which were selected for analysis. They found a weak correlation between quetiapine dose and measured plasma concentration. Quetiapine dose was correlated with central dopamine D2 occupancy, although the relationship between plasma level and D2 occupancy was less clear. Data on plasma level response relations were not sufficiently robust to allow the determination of a therapeutic plasma level range for quetiapine. The authors call on researchers to further examine the relationship between peak quetiapine plasma concentration and clinical response. We know that atypical antipsychotics carry the risk of side effects and that some people seem to tolerate these drugs better than others. But are there differences based on the specific diagnosis a patient has? Do people with bipolar depression react differently to the drugs than those with major depression or anxiety? A group from Case Western Reserve University pursued this question by estimating the number needed to treat to harm for discontinuing a study due to adverse events with atypical antipsychotics. Their analysis included five studies of bipolar depression, ten studies of major depressive disorder, and four studies of generalized anxiety disorder. It turned out that patients with anxiety had a lower tolerability to quetiapine than those with bipolar depression or major depressive disorder, although their sensitivity to the medication was similar. In most cases, lower doses were better tolerated than higher doses, regardless of the psychiatric condition. The authors of our next article point out that although social anxiety disorder is increasingly recognized as a prevalent, unremitting, and highly comorbid disorder, studies focusing on this disorder among U.S. Latinos and immigrant populations are not available. Using data from two national surveys, Polo and colleagues evaluated ethnic differences in the prevalence and comorbidity of social anxiety disorder. They also examined the clinical and demographic characteristics associated with this disorder.
The researchers found a lower lifetime and 12-month prevalence and a later age at onset among Latinos than among U.S.-born non-Latino whites. On the other hand, Latinos diagnosed with social anxiety disorder during the past 12 months reported greater impairment across home, work, and relationship domains than their non-Latino white counterparts. Latinos have distinct patterns of risk and associated characteristics of social anxiety disorder compared to non-Latino whites, reflected by the differences between the two groups for prevalence, onset, and impairment. The investigators caution that being fluent in English does not reduce the likelihood of the disorder among Latinos. In fact, those who grew up speaking both English and Spanish were at a higher risk than those who grew up speaking primarily Spanish. The authors recommend that screening for social anxiety disorder among Latinos should be considered regardless of nativity. Next, we have a report from a randomized controlled trial of omega-3 fatty acids for major depression, the largest such trial conducted to date. This study has received much international media attention. The researchers found a clear benefit of omega-3 supplementation among patients with major depression without comorbid anxiety disorders. 432 adult outpatients with a major depressive episode were treated for eight weeks by eight Canadian academic and psychiatric clinics. The overall clinical benefit in favor of omega-3 fatty acids was trivial in the full population in which a high proportion were difficult to treat patients. Of the four pre-planned subgroup analyses, there was no benefit of omega-3 by patient sex, by use of antidepressant or by fish consumption in the month before the study. But the benefit of omega-3 for depressed patients who had no comorbid anxiety disorders was significant. In fact, the efficacy for depressed patients without anxiety was comparable to that seen with conventional antidepressant treatment. The authors recommend specific next steps of investigation and contend that the results of the present study, combined with omega-3's safety and tolerability, make omega-3 a treatment worth pursuing. This study was supported by Isotis Natra, which also supplied the study medication and placebo, and by both the Foundation and the Research Center of the Hospital Center of the University of Montreal. Patients with severe depression are critically ill and require treatment to achieve fast response. Even though dose relationships with antidepressants are hard to pin down, the use of higher doses to achieve a quicker response has intuitive appeal. Duloxetine has been successfully used to treat non-severe depression at a therapeutic dose of 60 milligrams per day. Brecht and colleagues sought to determine whether doubling that dose would result in an earlier and better response. Nearly 350 severely depressed, hospitalized patients from four different countries were included in this double-blind randomized study. Patients underwent eight weeks of treatment with duloxetine at either 60 or 120 milligrams per day. After four weeks, patients in both treatment groups had responded at similar rates. By the end of eight weeks, two-thirds of all patients had achieved remission of depression, although no difference was found between the groups. 
There is also no difference in the frequency of adverse events between the groups. The authors concluded that duloxetine at 120 milligrams per day was no more effective than at 60 milligrams per day. However, both doses were effective in treating severe depression in hospitalized patients. Our sole article this month related to diabetes tells us that patients with type 1 diabetes more often have depression as compared to non-diabetic people. Research has shown that childhood trauma increases the risk of depression. To see if childhood traumatic events might account for later development of depression in diabetic individuals, Roy and colleagues examined the relation of childhood trauma to depressive symptoms in African-American patients with type 1 diabetes. From 1993 to 1998, a total of 150 African-American patients with type 1 diabetes completed the Beck Depression Inventory and a questionnaire assessing the occurrence of childhood trauma. Patients were also examined for a particular genotype that affects emotional response and resiliency. Patients with higher scores on the Beck Depression Inventory were found to have experienced significantly more different types of childhood trauma than those with lower depression scores. Differences within the genotype, however, were not found to be associated with differences in depression scores. The authors hope that the detection of this relationship between childhood trauma and depression will spur efforts to prevent exposure to traumatic events, specifically in individuals with diabetes and other medical disorders. To finish out our peer-reviewed articles this month, we present three reports by early career psychiatrists. The first on measurement-based care, the second on acupuncture for major depression, and the third, a meta-analysis of trials of antidepressants for comorbid depression and alcohol use disorder. Measurement-based care has been routine in medical practice for over 50 years and common research practice in psychiatry since the 1950s. Evidence has shown that systematic management produces better results with depression and other chronic medical conditions. But even though the concept of measurement-based care is neither revolutionary nor new, it has yet to be adopted as the standard of care. Thus, a gap exists between research and practice outcomes. The authors of this article review and illustrate by a case example the current standards of psychiatric clinical care, and they show how measurement-based care offers improvements to the current standards. They define measurement-based care for clinical practice, along with highlighting limitations and recommendations. They also provide a policy top 10 list for implementing measurement-based care into standard practice, including the following. Establishing clear expectations and guidelines. Fostering practice-based implementation capacities. Altering financial incentives. Helping practicing doctors adapt to measurement-based care. Developing and expanding the measurement-based care science base. And engaging consumers and their families. The authors assert that measurement-based care as the standard of care could transform psychiatric practice, move psychiatry into the mainstream of medicine, and improve the quality of care for patients with psychiatric illness.
More than half of patients treated for depression either do not tolerate or do not respond to antidepressant medications. A growing number of Americans have been turning to complementary and alternative modalities for treatment of depression. In fact, in a large survey, depression was in the top 10 of the most frequently reported medical conditions for which respondents sought alternative treatments. Since preliminary studies have shown a benefit of acupuncture for depression, the authors aim to investigate whether a two-point electroacupuncture protocol would be beneficial and tolerable in mild to moderate MDD in comparison to sham electrostimulation. To this end, they used a randomized parallel group design with 53 adult subjects who received 12 30-minute sessions over 6 to 8 weeks. Baseline to endpoint change in depression was measured and side effects were assessed. The authors hypothesized that 1. The true electroacupuncture group would have a greater decrease in depression scores than controls. 2. A higher proportion of the true electroacupuncture group would experience clinical response and improvement in functioning, and 3. Adverse effects would not differ between the groups. The trial did not demonstrate a specific effect of electroacupuncture. True electroacupuncture and control acupuncture were equally well tolerated and both resulted in similar absolute and relative improvement in depressive symptoms as measured by the Hamilton Depression Rating Scale. The authors of our final peer-reviewed article present a meta-analysis that sheds needed light on the efficacy of antidepressant treatment for patients with mood and alcohol use disorders. Patients with both disorders represent a sizable group. Recently, the STAR-D trial found that nearly one-quarter of patients with major depressive disorder also met criteria for a concurrent alcohol use disorder at baseline. But, as the authors note, little evidence of this group exists, mainly because most studies examining antidepressants in major depression employ standard criteria that excludes patients with active or recent alcohol use disorder. The authors determined to examine the efficacy of antidepressants in patients with depression and comorbid alcohol use disorder. In addition, they compared antidepressant and placebo response rates between depressed patients with or without comorbid alcohol use disorder. They believe that doing so could provide insights that would help in the design of future trials in patients with this particular comorbidity. The authors searched major databases for randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trials of antidepressants used as monotherapy for the acute treatment of major depressive disorder and dysthymic disorder in patients with or without alcohol use disorder. The search strategy produced nearly 200 articles. The results of the meta-analysis showed that antidepressants, with the exception of SSRIs, were more effective than placebo in patients with comorbid alcohol use disorder. 
The study also found no significant differences in the risk ratio of responding to antidepressants versus placebo in trials that included comorbid alcohol use disorder. The authors conclude that the results support the utility of certain antidepressants in treating depression in patients with comorbid alcohol use disorder, but that more data are needed on the use of the newer antidepressants. A regular journal feature from the American Society of Clinical Psychopharmacology, the ASCP Corner, gives useful information this month about pharmacologic treatment in clinical practice. The discussion is on how clinicians and researchers can use the Antidepressant Treatment Response Questionnaire to collect information on a patient's previous treatment. The advantages of the questionnaire are that it is reliable and relatively quick to complete. It establishes the adequacy of the duration and dose of previous medications, as well as the degree of improvement with those medications, to enable informed decisions about further treatment. The questionnaire itself is included in the print journal and on our website at psychiatrist.com. That's all for our August podcast, but as always, there is much, much more in our August issue. Please visit our website, psychiatrist.com, to find our letters and book reviews, a free online CME activity for one of the articles we've covered here, and other interactive activities from our CME Institute. Join us online for all of these and more from the August issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the publisher's podcast, Your Place for Psychiatry Soundbites.